Welcome to the Acme Conversations podcast, where we explore the world of the moving image and its connections to politics, society, culture, and art. This is a recording of a live event, and it may reference visual material. You can view this on our YouTube channel. Good evening and welcome to ACME. My name is Ari and I'm one of the producers for public programs here. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respect to their elders past, present and future and of course to any elders who may be present in the audience today. So again, welcome and to tonight's launch of season two of our conversation series. Um, ACME Conversations celebrates bold experimental ideas, discussion and debate and um, around the moving image and its connections to the world in which we live from politics to society, culture and art. This week we discuss museum approaches to collecting and to preserving digital objects and I'd like to introduce you to our panel. First up is Seb Chan and he's ACME's Chief Experience Officer. Uh, prior to this, Seb led the digital renewal and transformation of the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York and led experiments in the acquisition of digital design, including the app to enter the Smithsonian's permanent collection. He drove the Powerhouse Museum's pioneering work in open access, mass collaboration and digital experience during the 2000s. He's also worked as a museum consultant with institutions across North America, Europe and Asia. His work has won awards from American Alliance of Museums, One Club, D&AD, Fast Company and Core 77. He's an adjunct professor for the School of Media and Communications in College of Design and Social Context at RMIT and he also leads a parallel life in digital art and electronic music. Please a round of applause for Seb Chan. Of course, our international guest for tonight is Natalie D. Kane. Natalie is a curator of digital design at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Together with Tobias Ravel, she is a founder of Haunted Machines, a curatorial research project that explores the use of a magical analogy in our understanding of technology. Haunted Machines were curated in the 2017 Impact Festival in Utrecht and were commissioned by the Serpentine Galleries for their 2016 and 17 marathons. Previously, Natalie was a curator at Future Everything in Manchester, a festival and innovation lab for digital culture, and produced exhibitions and programs at digital arts organisation Lightone in Brighton. She is visiting lecturer at the Institute of European Design in Barcelona. Please, a round of applause for Natalie. Natalie, welcome. Welcome to Melbourne. Uh, the jet, jet lag is wearing off. The jet lag is real. Yeah, it's, it's real. It's good. So uh, digital preservation, uh, digital design. The V&A has been doing this in, interesting stuff, but you've only just joined the, the V&A. So do you want to tell us a bit about what's been going on and what this means? What, what does a curator of digital de design do nowadays? Yeah, it's, it's a funny one because it's, um, it's a relatively new position where I've been there for about eight months now. Um, we previously had a curator of digital about five or six years ago, but it was more on a wider approach. And the curator of digital design is kind of a slightly more narrow, but still quite massive uh, area. 
Um, because I think the museum is starting to figure out that we are acquiring and bringing in a lot of things which could be classed as digital design, but also a number of things which could kind of sit on the fringes of it as well. And it has to be understood in the same way that we think about ceramics and 18th century design and Japanese textiles and that kind of thing. Um, so it's quite exciting, but it's also massively overwhelming because obviously there's not really a framework in place um, for this stuff. There's a few kind of, a number of experiments which all contributed towards this work that I'm currently doing now from anything from like our rapid response collecting uh, collection to some of the sort of work that we've done uh, historically. So we have like the Computer Art Society collection and the Patrick Prince collection, which sits in our digital art um, department, which is looked after by Douglas Dodds and Melanie Lentz. Um, so they've got a history of that, but a lot of those works are on paper. And actually, a lot of the digital works they've got are still relatively new and still had to be thought about. But it's very different to think about digital art than it is to think about things like apps and web services and that kind of thing. You can learn quite a lot from that. Um, so a lot of my work is trying to figure out what that looks like and trying to kind of carve out a strategy and think about how the museum has to start thinking about these objects in that way, um, which is fun, but also like the amount of questions where I got asked, like, what is the internet or what is the network? And like, what are games? Like all that kind of thing has been quite um, interesting. A lot of it is like us bringing in things in order to just kind of figure out what the shape of them are and then kind of moving forward from that point. How does that work with um, the sort of use of curatorial practice, I guess, to change the institution when there's... Surely you need a policy before you can bring things into the, inst the institution. They kind of have to happen side by side, unfortunately. It's like because we've, we've kind of got... Um, uh, sort of we had in the last five years of digital design sort of a look to collect and preserve and exhibit digital design but there wasn't really as much there was kind of a bit of a tertiary that kind of came through that but obviously in the last five years we've also collected like a, a huge amount of objects which have had their own challenges and it's not enough to kind of wait for the process and the policy to be there you kind of have to collect the stuff and then see um, what you, you have to create around it which is kind of Obviously, not the most ideal, but I think it's better than having to kind of go, OK, we'll just wait for someone to do it first, and then, then we can start building out a strategy. And even things like collecting WeChat recently was a massive undertaking for us because there were still things that we still acknowledged we could have been doing alongside that. Um, and it was the collecting curator, Brendan Cormier, who brought it in. It took about two years to bring in WeChat. And can you just break yeah. down? What, what, what did you collect there? What, yeah, what is this fine. WeChat that is being collected? So for those who aren't familiar, WeChat is the biggest social network um, in China and you can literally do most things through it because everything's centralised on the app so you can like book a cab book a doctor's appointment um, you can chat with your friends you can do a number of things and um, it's it was quite challenging that we, we did it alongside the work that the V&A were doing in uh, a design society in Shenzhen where we've got a, a gallery um, of contemporary design all 20th uh, design in there and it's 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 difficult because it, you can't the, the weird thing is you can collect the app and you can download that from um, the app store or wherever you want to download it from and you have that but the problem is that it's not really alive unless it has people interacting with it and all the services that are there so what we collected in the end um, was the app kind of as we downloaded it from uh, the APK file then we had like a special demo that was made for us with Tencent, who were the creators of WeChat. And that took sort of about a week and a half worth of developers' time to kind of essentially freeze it so that it, when you loaded it, it wouldn't kind of contact the server and it wouldn't update itself. Because the problem with, is with that, that if you let it do that, then it essentially, like, it could break it and brick it. Um, we also have a collection of the GIFs, the Bubble Pop GIFs, um, because we thought it was quite important to show some of that part of the culture as well. We have the uh, original sketches of the Bubble Pop GIFs, and Bubble Pop Pup's basically this kind of really strange, wonderful little character. But there's, we've got about 153 GIFs of him. 
or them, yeah. Um, but the um, it was really difficult because I think I think Brendan did originally think about collecting like a user profile to try to sort of do that snapshot of what it was like to be a person on WeChat at that time. But obviously, there's a number of issues that are still we're still working at now around things like copyright and personal data, particularly um, other people. So not not kind of the person who's interested in themselves, but you'd have to get the consent and the, the copyright from other people who'd interacted with you, um, and that kind of causes this big like exponential problem sort of ripple effect um, of so yeah it's it's a bit it's still an ongoing concern for us kind of going or well, maybe should we still continue thinking about this this um object but at the moment this is how it's being shown in the gallery which is not um it's kind of a snapshot of one thing but we are looking to think about it differently as we redesign the galleries so 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 what what when it's on show in this con- context what what's its purpose what what does it serve in terms of what are visitors supposed to gain out of experiencing or seeing this beyond what they could get from being asked to, yeah. to down, uh, download and put it on their own device? I mean, so where it is in the room, as you can see, is this white block here. It's in our, 20, our post-1945 design gallery. So I think it's literally opposite, um, like a Sotsas cabinet and Thomas Sweet's toaster, which I can talk about a bit later. Um, but it's, it's in a number of... It's kind of put alongside a lot of more sort of... Um, I don't know. It's the interest, going back a few steps. It's interesting to think about the legitimacy of showing certain designs, and it's still like trying to reframe and show digital design as being as legitimate as sort of classical chair design and that kind of thing is always interesting. But um, so we've kind of put it in that room, and what you kind of get a snapshot of is on the left hand side is the demo, um, which kind of we got recorded for us of someone just using it for about twenty minutes, so that you could see how people were sending messages and what like what functionality there was. So it's not alive, interactive, but it kind of gives you an encounter rather than a sort of strict emulation. On the right, you have um, the GIFs that are being shown, and I think that we've, we've chosen about 15 of them to cycle through. And on the right-hand side is the original sketches, which is kind of the designers of those GIFs kind of working with each other to show how those GIFs need to be thought about. Um, and it's, it's, it's one option for us to show, but I think we, we're starting to think a bit more uh, as we sort of think about what we want the galleries to look like in the future, mm. what we need to be accounting for to allow for the B2B richer experience of showing that stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult because it is... I mean, I've, I've seen a number of kind of people try to look at this in the same way, and it is... We have to catch up and we have to think about this from a, a more, um, I don't know, a slightly different view than, than book on a wall, but... It's interesting that that you've used the paper sketches as illustrations of how those gifts were designed mm. because obviously they would have then gone into digital tools mm. to make them into the gifts. Yeah. Uh, but you're not showing the digital versions of yeah. the design work. You're, you're you're going back to the paper sketches. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's definitely something that, especially for a museum, that's quite object and process obsessed. So so the V&A is slightly different in that we we tend to sort of show much more the process and the craft, but that's always been the central kind of like idea as a museum is to show that, that process. But the problem is now we're encountering a problem where digital design processes aren't the same as what we've traditionally understood those kind of designing processes to be and a good example of this is that I've recently just acquired the mosquito emoji by Ethelandra Messer and she's really fascinating because she doesn't realise the effect that she's had on the emoji design so she's I think she's proposed with Emoji Nation who are a sort of a group which essentially um, lobby for emojis to be more more diverse and more inclusive of certain communities and and, um, identities and she's proposed like 107 I think that she he's done the initial illustrations for with about 18 or 20 going through which if you think about it in terms of traditional design it's like any earlier 
person who's been quite influential in that work. Um, but when we were kind of e emailing, I asked her, like, oh, can you talk me through the process that, that you did this? Did you have any original sketches? And she's like, no, I just did them straight into Illustrator. Yeah. Um, it, I had my, my senior curator kind of saying, oh, so, but does she have any initial sketches? Like, no, this, this is how it's done. Like, and trying to make sure that the museum accounts for the way that digital designers are working now mm. um, is quite difficult when you still want to, like, you, you, people kind of still obsessed with the idea of having something to hold or having something that you can see the steps in. And that's where things like version controlling are really interesting. Mm. So. I mean, it, it feels like lots and lots of museums are now in the icon space have acquired Susan DeCare's mm, Macintosh yeah, icons, yeah. but they're always shown as the the uh, grid paper sketch, sketches. Yeah. It's, again, that materiality. And I think it's, yeah. it's fascinating that museums struggle with the immaterial mm. in design space well, spaces. Since she, with the Susan Curry work, it was like, because she, I think she studied embroidery as a way of, of figuring through the, the kind of composition of that work as well. Um, so, it, but it is—it's kind of—it's—it's uh, it's a difficult one because, especially when we—I keep going back to this this kind of object-led approach. So a lot of um, a lot of way that kind of conceptually sort of curatorial work is thinking about things like what is the object that you want to show, what is the thing that's there, or what is the thing that you want to collect, um, and it, it kind of comes more complicated. But especially when you have things that are sort of designed that's networked or dependent on certain things, and that's where all of the previous ways we've understood stuff it kind of falls apart a little bit, like a little bit, and that's where context and encounters and stories kind of I would argue come become quite integral and important to that. It's interesting so. that, that you talk about the, that the V&A's digital art is separated from the V&A's digital design and mm. that, 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 that it would seem to me as if there are art practices and art preservation pra practices that have dealt with this mm. with conceptual art particularly yeah. or performance art, yeah. the archives of performance art, the archives of conceptual art seem to cater for this ephemeral work much more than but when it comes into design context both I say in my experience at the powerhouse and Cooper Hewitt mm. and now here that the, the design con, 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 context frames these in a diff, different way mm. and perhaps that's that's where we're getting stuck on yeah it's interesting because it's like when you look at the work of like Dragon Espenscheid who's rhizome social conservator like he's made massive leaps and in, in, in kind of figuring out what that looks like from digital arts and particularly around like software and web-based art and they've, they've kind of created this amazing tool which is called web, web recorder which I'm really excited to see what they do with it because they've recently just got a grant to keep developing that forward um, and it's it's I don't know whether it's because I don't know it's a, tr it's a tricky one because I guess with, with things like digital art there is maybe I don't know I'm trying not to speak it sort of be too um there's a kind of a container almost around it in some ways, whether kind of like there is a performance and there is something which is there. But I think the thing is, I always go back to the, the, the problem with things like networked art and I'm not sorry, networked art or network design or Internet of Things. Like these things don't kind of work unless there's a network going through them, and those experiences are always different and contextual to individual people. But then again, even with digital art, a lot of those experiences are very personal. Um, I'm thinking of people like Nina Freeman's work, for instance, does a lot of interesting work around like it, it kind of depends on your own personal interaction with it and like games for instance are all mm, part of mm. that um, Kentucky Route Zero is another example of that like it's a deeply personal work um, but yeah so I don't know what it is about I don't know maybe I'm a bit thinking too intellectually about it but like the, the, the problem with things like network design and digital design is maybe because it's not it's always been thought of about as a technology and not as something to preserve or think about and like it's like people always ask me like why are you not working in science museums like well they are doing this stuff but 
like the science museum will tell you how it works and the history of science, but we'll kind of tell you what it means in terms of design. And yeah, it's a, a weird one. But. So when places like MoMA collected, uh, say, EVE, Eve multi, multiplayer video game or uh, World of War, Warcraft or uh, even Minecraft, it was mm. that notion of video game recording, the, the um, let's play versions yeah. of things that showing how things were, were played. And also, I guess, in other video game collections, mm. you have player yeah. stories and that, that sense of the player communities being mm. almost more important than the work itself. Um, is it something about design museums wanting to show um, they're trying to make the object do another task, like show how it was made uh, or the processes through which it was made and, and it yeah. gets caught up in... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question because um, our, we've got a show coming up called Video Games, which is um, by curators uh, Marie Fulston and Christian Volsing. And the, the reason why... I mean, the, the, I'm really excited to show not just because it's happening in our department, but because they, they are focusing on the design and they're picking apart like the, the process sketches and the, the choices that the designers made to kind of unbundle that process and demystify it in that way and show how people are um, doing kind of a, a, a combination between the kind of player and fan culture and the d decisions made by studios to do certain things. So even like, if anyone's ever tried to play Dark Cells or Bloodborne, um, will know how infuriating it is, but it's because it's a really interesting design choice to, to kind of almost train you and make you better and think more conscientiously about things. Um, and I love it and I hate it at the same time. Um, but it's it's an interesting um, in that there's not, I don't, I don't know whether they've decided to make any games playable yet. I think they're still deciding those things. Um, because they want to focus and they kind of want to show the process of design and, and make it as it, to kind of hold it up with as much importance to any other design process that we have in the museum. Because I think it's there's always this thing where it's like, I think people don't understand the, the craft and the process that goes through the studio and the conscientiousness and the research and that kind of thing. And there's a number of shows that have done that, but I think it's um, that's where it's starting to kind of get a bit tricky. But even things like showing. Um, showing apps or showing certain things like is it enough for you just to show the, the the kind of the interaction you have or is it important that you have those kind of contextual and cultural encounters and I think Dragon Espenshide talks a lot about that where it's like it, actually you need to kind of almost prioritise the encounter over the emulation sometimes Yeah. because yeah. it's like otherwise it doesn't it, you can't show what it actually meant and what it was there and I think actually it's weirdly reflecting back now on sort of more traditional object practice where it's like having to show the things in situ or showing interaction it's like even when we're thinking about our new our um, our galleries, it's like what do we need to place alongside like an Eames chair to show actually what it meant to people? Like even things like Robin Hood Gardens, which we're showing, which is a ma basically a massive bit of the building we've just collected recently. We're starting to realise that actually for, like all these things which. Um, have always almost been seen as being something that you put in exhibition need to be collected as well and need to be preserved alongside rather than just something that you show as supplementary material in an exhibition. So. so what does it mean, collect a building? That seems much hard, <laughs> harder than a video game. I mean, I'm not on the team that are, that are working on it, but I have every admiration for them. Um, so it's, it's a... It's a th hang on. I think it's three floors or two floors or three floors of a, of a social housing building in London. Um, and it's it was designed and by the Smithsons, who were kind of big, important architects. And um, it was supposed to be this sort of a big social project, and they had the streets in the sky um, idea, which was the idea that you could people could play on every level. But 
it's been knocked down now because the council are redeveloping it. Um, and it's it's an interesting kind of observation in basically showing how important it is for us to acknowledge and understand not just the, the success of social housing, but the failures as well. And actually see it as being something which was designed with a very particular purpose. And it's, it's about kind of starting those conversations, um, which is what the kind of the, the museum is, kind of, especially our department, are pacing towards. It's like trying to show um, not just beautiful, pretty objects, things, which because we have a history of, of creating, um, collecting beautiful things, but actually each department is now starting to collect things which provoke or are more directly political or more directly sort of, I mean, ugly. I mean, the, the Robin Hood Gardens, people think it's an awful building. I think it's really beautiful because I love brutalism. Um, but it is like the issue about like beauty not being enough anymore and it being like, actually, you need to show all the different parts, which is why rapid response collecting was so... Um, important to us as, as a, um, ah, as a uh, collection. Um, so tell us a bit about this rapid, rapid response, because I know this has had, this when it, when it was first announced, had such a ripple across the museum world, but it did feel to me like exactly the sort of work that museums should, should be doing more of in engaging with the object as a provocation. Uh, um, as a provocation mm. and uh, rather than waiting 20 years or 50 years to prove that some, 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 something was mm. significant, that yeah. it was a way of talking about current issues mm. um, and using the, ob- the, ob- the object almost as a prop for debate. Yeah, um, so I think it started in 2014, just double-checking, um, by uh, Corinna Gardner and Kieran Long, who's now... Uh, Corinna's still with us, but Kieran Long's now at arcdesnes.com. Um, and the whole idea of the collection was to collect things which had particular um, urgency today and told us particular stories about design and politics or design society that needed to be almost confronted quite immediately. Um, because traditionally, things often in the V&A were seen to... It's, it's, still quite, it's, it's quite an old idea, but it still kind of it still exists um, even peripherally um, that you couldn't really collect things unless they were like over 50 years and that showed their significance and their importance in design um, into the museum but actually I think it was in the sort of 50s or 60s there was a department called Cirque which used to take objects um, and combine them with contemporary objects at the time and take them around outside the museum to kind of schools and libraries and universities and things and then that kind of closed up shop um, around sort of the late 60s, early 70s, if I get my history properly. And then many years later, um, the V&A with Corinna and Kieran decided to start collecting things which had almost like a direct provocation on what we understand design to be today. And it's, it's, it's not enough for us to think, kind of wait and see if these things have significance because they're already having significance now. So we have things like the Katy Perry eyelashes, which um, were marketed as being artisanal eyelashes. But then when you found out they were, they were handmade, but people were being paid 15p a day for them. And it's important to bring those stories through objects and tell those stories through objects um, and even things like the uh, the Hong Kong umbrella which is on the left hand side which someone sent us directly from the protest um, and then the Corbyn t-shirt um, but even things like the pussy hats up here which everyone I think a lot of people may be familiar with which was used during the women's march um, t- I think it was last year um, but the, the story around that is that we, we still class that as a digital design object rather than it being a hat or being a piece of textiles because it wouldn't well, technically wouldn't have existed or had the same design story or context if it hadn't come from or been disseminated around a Facebook group. The PDF to, to, to mm-hmm. kind of knit it was disseminated in a, in a Facebook group, and arguably the Women's March started as a result of a Facebook group. Um, so we still kind of see that as being that. But as one of my colleagues said, that if we were doing a, if it was a museum of knitting, that would have a different context. So in that way, context is really important. So, but, so yeah. if we take the pussy hat, do you? 
also then collect the Facebook do you take a dump of the Facebook group using web web recorder? Interesting, because we haven't done that yet. But we literally were talking about this quite recently because we're doing some research um, at the museum around sort of digital collections and how we classify things. And actually, we're still having that um, that conversation about doing what else we need to collect. Because we collected this, and I think we have the PDF file as well um, of the pattern. But it's really important that we start thinking more about like that context and that issue because we haven't actually collected the Facebook page yet. And actually, it is a conversation that we've had, but we've not there's still that hesitancy of like what is the appropriate response and stuff and this is the where the kind of legality of it becomes quite interesting is because obviously how you would collect many different people talking and, and their kind of personal data and their copyright yeah. is an issue in museums particularly around um, consent and making sure people know that it's being brought in and there's still, that's still very early days for us in terms of like we we still need to think about it in that way but it's like working out the meat of that I guess and it would feel like other museums social hist- history museums mm. would be doing similar work mm. and, and perhaps this is the intersection of you know the the VNA becoming a museum that's that's, yeah. that's engaging with other forms of museology, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, um, there's a really great project, um, or ongoing project um, at Bishopsgate, um, which is like an archive of uh, protest material, and they've got a really, really good and rich. Um, history of uh, collecting kind of process objects and things which um, from things like signs of uh, protests to uh, people kind of contributing and creating their own archive of of, um, I don't know dissidents and that kind of thing Um, but they they take a lot of oral histories and a lot of interviews from those things I think it's traditionally we've not really done oral histories at the V&A I think it's it's starting to think in that way, but then what does that mean to kind of collect a user profile as a means of doing that? So yeah, that that seems like an absence. Like mm. that, it would it seems strange that the museum wouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm actually just look looking the pussy hat up in your uh, mm. on online collections to see what the actual record for it might say. Um, but it doesn't seem to be here. But let me just try going. So this, this is where is, I'll figure out our search collections and see where our cataloging is. <laughs> so we've, we've talked about doing this talk as sort of a WebJ sort mm. of thing where we, we can, yeah. So this this also where things break down. Yeah. Let's, let, let's try the lashes. Let's see if the lashes. So let's see the view the details on this and and what and the museum systems and the mm. I, the I, the ideology of the museum is encoded into these databases yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. and the sense of like what is in the file here um, that, and, and what does it talk about so that that seems like it might be the label text for this yes yeah, so we have the we kind of got three it's interesting like three different types of text we have the justification which sits in the kind of acquisition file which mm. is like the reasons for why we brought it into the museum and its significance and it's often written by the curator and then you have your the summary which is this kind of slightly shorter text which is more um, which goes through our accessibility um, checks to make sure that it's it's kind of accessible and you can still read it and that kind of thing uh, but we also have things like all these classifications and it tells you what the dimensions are and the materials um, it's actually a really well catalogued file so I'm going to have to congratulate our team on doing this. It's but, great. Um, but it is, it, like, even things that we've, we've got a, a Mellon-funded project called Content Data Object, which me and Corinna are um, the curatorial co-leads on Fancy Term. Um, and it is trying to figure out actually where the classifications and the cataloging starts to break down with digital objects mm. because we realise that actually sometimes it's much more complicated than just, like, listing the materials. Like, if you think about something... Um, like a recent acquisition we've got is things like um, is the, the Heather Dewey Hagborg's Radical Love, which is a series of portraits um, of Chelsea Manning, um, sort of famous whistleblower, and now running for Senate, which is interesting. 
Um, but the, the, the object kind of comes with four different objects that make up part of the group, which is like the 3D printed mm. files, the .wrl files, um, the .jpeg image of them, and the .mov video, but also the envelopes where Chelsea's DNA was sent to Heather to generate the portraits. Um, but the problem is, like, I, was, I was writing the justification of the day, and it's like trying to explain .wrl files, and like, the, like then you have to list the material of that particular object. It's like, ah. Like, yeah. I mean, you could say it's it's like the material is like the coat. The coat. Code. Is it the ASCII? Code. Yeah, yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Like, is it? But we don't we don't have a classification for that. And even things like um, we've we've noted through doing this project, like when you bring an object into a museum, you have to class the hazards. Mm. So things that could happen to the object, or the object could do to other objects. Traditionally, you have it with like beaver hats, where the mercury in it could potentially kill someone, or could infect. Or there's like it's got termites, that kind of thing. But there's no accounting for like does this this file could potentially corrupt other files, or it, it mm. might have a virus attached to it, or but also it, it could suffer from things like bit rot and like a number of the things. We don't have that classification in our in our, in our system yet, um, which has been fascinating because suddenly you, you see all these holes and kind of go, that's why it's been difficult, and that's mm. why we're not equipped just yet. But we have to keep collecting those things. It's not enough for us to kind of go, oh, we'll wait until the software's there, until that thing's there. You kind of have to bring those things in to provoke those com- and push those conversations forward. So where, where do they go? In Is there a holding room, a digital holding room for the things that can't yet be catalogued but are in the collection? Um, well, we have like... So we have sort of prop objects and prop objects, which are things that are not quite brought in, but actually most of them do get brought in. Mm. Um, the problem is, it's like, obviously, when you're cataloguing them, you kind of, you have to work as much as you can around the object. And actually, um, you get into the practice of in the, the, the file that you kind of send off. We still have paper files. Everything still has to go through paper files, which is, I mean, it's, it's fine. It's good because it means it's not just one record. But we have to put, we started putting things in like, um, I mean, Corinna, my, my sort of senior curator, puts in articles and I like, mm. printed off articles into the back of files to kind of show that like the, the print of the web page to show the kind of significance in that way but actually it's um, all of our digital files go on our digital asset management system which also holds all of our images from like events and uh, private views and that kind of thing as well as these objects and yeah it's, it's kind of a, a weird sort of it goes onto a server that's the best way I can really describe it yeah um, which is like the, the kind of the lame argument for us like it just goes on a server but um I mean, which are, is in the yeah. cloud, which is which just is somewhere else. Yeah. God. Um, but it's interesting because like, when, when you think about things like when you're writing projections for like storage and stuff, and if you're going to be creating... Like, we've got a new collection centre that's um, currently being... Um, it's out for tender for the architect at the moment and trying to talk to them about, like, oh, so, so what are the... Like, are you going to have a cooling system for the server room? They're like, what? <laughs> I was like, okay, you do realise that you have to cool... And so they do understand this, but it's like trying to show the growth of like digital objects and mm. say, like, it's, it's not a case of just saying we need X square foot. It's more like we need to have this infrastructure and these things here. And that's always an interesting conversation to have with your head of conser- like conservation and collections management. But yeah, but the, I think everyone generally is on board in that way. It's just like... I'm very lucky that actually my, my team in particular are unbelievably supportive about the stuff that we bring in. There's never any sort of like, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. It's more like, a, okay, so if we're going to do this, how would that look? And then we start making plans in that way. But it's still quite... A f- um, there's still obviously the issues around um, the older institution, um, particularly when it's, it is seen as being like so tangible and object-led. Mm. Like All these systems and all these structures have come from a history of collecting chairs and cabinets and portraits and that kind of thing. And then obviously that starts to kind of crumble a bit when you bring in like emojis or like um, I don't know viruses or um, Guardian destroy computers and that kind of thing and yeah it's interesting but does the um, 
Do the objects, when they're in digital form, need to physically reside on the premises of the museum in, in server rooms and these sorts of things? Or, you know, Legally, where, where are yes. the borders? So we have, a, we have servers, and we have, but we also have... Um, we copy some things as well, mm -hmm. from my understanding. Um, but it is, it's interesting, because like, when you acquire objects, you have to say, like, before you can formally acquire they have to be on-site. And that is interesting when it's like, oh, okay, so, but it's on-site, but if there's also a copy that's off-site as well, like... Because you, you can't really acquire things until they're literally physically on the premises. But also, there's even things, there's workarounds like having a USB or a hard drive copy of it that physically sits in your cage store. That's another object opportunity. But Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, somewhat crazy, right? No, no, but it's, it's, it's interesting because like, we, we talk about things. Like I was speaking to a colleague recently about... Um, object labeling digital objects so when you have an object come in you have to, to label it as a result of, of like kind of keeping tabs make sure it's definitely a museum object you've not it's not from like it can't be stolen because it's got this on it um and I had to do my object marking training a couple of months ago and you learn like very very well how to get very good at numbering very very tiny numbers on objects and but obviously I asked them like okay so how do I object how do I object mark this digital file and they're like mm. uh, you can put a, a dot like a text file in it it's like no that's not numbering the object because they can get separated and like we can't really watermark it because and then obviously our conservators were like nope like it's not because they don't want to it's because it's a completely new challenge it's just like because if you watermark an object you're slaughtering it in a way that has to be reversible yeah. and yeah it's interesting but it reminds uh, me of the Cooper Hewitt experience acquiring this app uh, for the Smithsonian and then and it ends up we print the source code out of course okay. and it sits on the shelf as yeah. Dig001 <laughs> and um, because because the, the point was that it had to have a location and, mm. and the system required a location to acquire it and you couldn't just say yeah GitHub. no no yeah it's a good um, point because yeah, we, we haven't really collected any source code yet I don't think I don't think we have that must be coming, right? I know, it absolutely is. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, like, talking about, um, I think we were talking earlier in the cafe about uh, like open source material, and like we recently just um, we're just bringing into the museum the Thingomatic, which is one of the earlier Makerbots, and that obviously was built on open hardware and open source. And the issue with that is like there are many different authors to that material, and the whole community has a level of ownership over it. And actually, it's really interesting that when they changed the Replicator Two, which became closed source, everyone got really cross because they were like, "Hang on, you've used all of our code, and now it's, we can't have." access to it and that kind of thing um but it is it's i always feel like we have to make sure that we we bring in that story and it's not enough mm. to just kind of go oh uh, just uh, it's on the internet but it's uh it's it's a weird one especially things like github like i'd love to be able to think about how we like how we brought in things on github mm. and how that would work in a museum but it is obviously it's a new um for us, it's still a new problem. I keep saying like new problems, but new challenge. That's how I'm trying to rephrase it, rather than uh, like just the noise uh, whenever things come in. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, it's a funny one. So this is this is this object that uh, my team acquired for the Cooper Hewitt. This is this is how it exists: is as a uh, repository on Git GitHub. Eight hundred and eighty-two uh, commits. Uh, which 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 tracks all the variants, um, and there's also the cura curatorial file sits in here as well. Mm. Um, but you can see you can see it has the ex extras here, mm. which was which was an interesting one in terms of the the screen grabs and all the other things, all the things you were talk, talking about around the the um, uh, sense of what the ob the object mm. is, um, and I was talking to uh, one of my uh, you know uh, former colleague who was saying, "Well, what what did you actually acquire?" Mm. And um, 
it, surely the iPad that we had out on show on, in that exhibition that it was in was the object. Mm. And in fact, that wasn't the object. The object, we, that just happened to be the, iP the iPad that yeah, was yeah. in the office that was of the ver version of iOS mm. that could actually still play it that meant we could put it on exhibition. Mm. And it had some music that was on my laptop loaded into it so it worked. Yeah. But that wasn't the thing. The thing was, in fact, the source, the source code and all the other stuff. So we have that with, like, Flappy Bird. So we have, we've we collected Flappy Bird, which if anyone ever remembers is that amazingly frustrating game, which kind of uses kind of real gravity um, mechanics um, to kind of essentially you can put a, a bird through a series of tubes. Um, and the reason why we collected it for, for rabbits is a, that's a real simplification of it's a great I got like 30 once and I got so happy about it um, but it was uh, the reason why we, we kind of collected it is because of the story again around and a lot of the things with rapid response is the story is because it's a, a, a developer called Dong Yuen uh, uh, I can't remember I think it's Dong Ingen um, yeah uh, who kind of created this game and it was an overnight sensation and eventually like he just had too much of the um, the media attention and to it, it and just took it offline yeah. so suddenly everyone who had this on their phone were like oh my god this is gold dust and you saw sort of the game phones with the game being put on eBay for like thousands and thousands of dollars and, and pounds <laughs> it's absolutely amazing like but it, it's so important to kind of like that gamer culture and like even like um, sort of the weird eco economies that mm. arose as a result of that but obviously with the way that we shot in, in the museum is on a phone that's had to be had to have like the background refresh or the um, turned off turned off yeah, yeah, so, it, yeah. so that it doesn't accent like just make it kind of brick the the game and um, obviously it's that the phone is not the object the file is the object but, it, but often again that kind of the idea with the ipad problem is like when people are used to thinking about things in a certain way that is a default they think about um rather than kind of going we need to also look after the phone because it does house that but yeah so what is the preservation strategy for this ob object is it preserving the phone so it can play it in its original state or is it about preserving the game, which would mean it could be run through an emulator five, ten years from now. Yeah, so we have we have the file, the game file, which we we're able we so we can we're able to emulate it. But we also do have the phone, which has it on there, because it's really important that we do still have a phone that can use it. Because if you emulate it, you don't have the same experience as it would be as a user kind of playing it on on a phone. So it is still really important to preserve but the phone. Surely but. you won't be able to play it on the phone because the touch surface on the phone won't work through the white gloves, right? Because you won't be able to touch the phone in the future. So technically, it, because it's not a museum object, the phone, you don't have to use it with, with gloves. This is the interesting... Um, and actually, you don't use white gloves for everything at all. Sure. As I, was, I found out recently in my conservation training, there are some things you just don't use because of the fibres on it. You don't touch wooden chairs with white gloves because it will catch if it's plywood it will catch the fibers of the cotton and that kind of thing anyway that's a really boring museum thing um i learned so many weird things about uh about objects and how you can check for cracks in ceramics you just like clink them i was like you can't do that i'm like yeah you can it's like what's the equivalent with these yeah, dropping phones just dropping phones yeah. yeah oh my god um but the uh but you can still still play the object but obviously the, the interesting thing about bringing things into museums is that you try not to overuse them or try not to almost turn them on because you're so you don't want to actually accidentally end up sort of hmm. I don't know um I mean, there's the weird thing about bringing things into, into museums that they kind of they cease to be that thing in some ways but they still have this life to them which is why context and cultural sort of the all of the, the the other stuff that comes with it is really important because I don't know things like the Minitel that I recently kind of brought in that is like it's it's kind of a, a, a weird object and does anyone know what the Minitel is 
Oh, that's like, yeah, one person. So I love it because it's um, it's an alternate, almost like an alternate history of the internet in that way. It's where it existed before the World Wide Web as we know it. Um, it was distributed by France, what was France, um, early France Telecom, um, to replace all of the phone books that are being wasted. So it's a really, again, they gave people free like terminals and they're really badly made. They're a bit shoddy. Um, this isn't, they're just they're adorable. They're like this big. Um, and it's, they weren't really kind of seen as computers. It was almost like a phone book that you could type and look in things. But then as they kind of went on, um, people started using them for things like uh, chat rooms. You could book theater tickets. But the best thing about it is that it was the first sort of adult chat rooms. And like um, people used, to, the, the, there's always amazing stories of this, this guy who uh, in his garage had like 12 or 13 mini tales and he was pretending to be different women talking to <laughs> talking to guys and because like, he could charge a premium and that's who made money on it and, and right. I think the guy who um, who runs France Telecom now is like made a bunch of money off of this um, but it's it existed outside of what we understand the intent to be but when you plug it into into power it just shows you a line because it's not connected to the, the system anymore but which it got shut down I mean it started in like 1984 five um maybe earlier than that um and it got shut down in like 2012 and like people were still using this like, i remember my parents used to live in france and like the guy in the garage like had one and, and like behind the desk um but it's very difficult for you to tell the story of that unless you bring all of these things and like, i interviewed the guy who, who gave it to us and asked him why he had it and that kind of thing Obviously, he didn't tell me about using adult chat rooms but Maybe he did. But you, um, you looked at his chat history, of course, in the, in the object, like, right? I, I, you can't, because like, it's all... It's in yeah. the net, network. Right? Um, yeah. But it's, it's very important, because like, if I just showed you this, this object and plugged it in, it wouldn't tell you anything. Um, and if you, if you did try to emulate the bridge, or bridge, create a bridge between like a fake version of it, it still wouldn't tell you what it was like to be a person using that sort of in the late 80s and late 90s. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a difficult... I don't know, it's like... Yeah, what the object is is always the big question. Like, what is it? So, and 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 what is the purpose of showing the object too? I guess in in terms yeah. of if you put this on exhibition in an exhibition about the design of adult um, con conversations yeah. through time, uh, that would be dif different to showing it as uh, in in a series of interfaces. Yeah, for example. I mean, it's definitely. I mean, I always go back to the idea that context is everything in that way. And actually, the way that you position and you... I mean, this is kind of curation 101 is like how you put objects in relation to other objects. But obviously, when the object is intangible and not as easy to see or as easy to understand, then that's where it becomes a little bit more... I wouldn't say it makes it any less or more complicated than anything else. It's just a different problem. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm very hesitant to say that digitality has made things super, super complex because you could always... Like, every object in some way is networked, like... It, whether it's kind of an Eames chair and who designed this and the fact that, I don't know, uh, Herman Miller and Vitra and all of that story, it's still kind of a networked understanding, but it's, it is that, I think it's just a different problem and it's one that we're not particularly well equipped with because it moves so quickly. And I think that's maybe the difference is the speed, is that things are changing so quickly with digitality and, and things being digital objects that it, it's, it's less easy to keep an eye on. It's less easy for you to track that history and, and to track that stuff. Does that mean that they're also perhaps less important for museums to care about in the short term? No. 
it's 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 because again we were talking earlier about ephemerality i think it's the interesting thing about a lot of these projects particularly around sort of speaking to people in industry and i've I've spent a lot of time kind of working with people in industry is that they don't think about their objects as being things that have to have preservation plans or have to have things which like um it has to be kept and put into the museum for the future because a lot of them they're just kind of delivering and they're putting stuff out but when you kind of go and talk to them and say oh we want to um we would really like to kind of preserve this they're just like oh god what do we have like how and it's 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 very interesting even talking to um some colleagues who used to work at last fm so if anyone used last mm. fm i used to be obsessed when i was younger and um, there's a really great story about one of their servers being i think stolen or someone trying to break into their servers to kind of pull the credit card details out and i was like do you still have that server and they were like i don't know where it is we don't know which one it is. And so, because I don't think about it in the way that curators think about it, but actually it's not a new problem. Like a lot, when you go and speak to archives of people like, mm. I don't know, uh, Jasper Morrison, that kind of thing, like there is some archiving that happens, but obviously it's, it's still like all those little peripheral things aren't there. And that's where you have, that's again where the story is really important. And um, one of our curators, Chris Wilk, who's our keeper of furniture, textiles and fashion, he was the one who told me, like, you have to get the story. I think that he, he tells a story about the, the Isacon donkey, which is, like, this beautiful little um, kind of cabinet that was designed for Penguin Books, which perfectly fits those. And, like, obviously, he kind of waited until he found one that had some life and that he could interview and bring into the museum with the story, rather than just kind of going, OK, we're just going to have the one that we can just get, we can just bring it in, which is kind of one of the earlier days of rapid response, actually, is some of the earlier thinking came from that. Because the reason why we bring these things in is not purely because of, like, they are good design, but because they have a story which tells us something about the life of that object. But I think, actually, that is the, the thing. It's, like, the life of the object. But you've also but. started to look at them now from how they were designed as well. So it's not just the life after they're made but mm. the life before or during the process of making them and I guess that shift is perhaps creating this tension between when the object is finished and so when it becomes yeah. museumifiable yeah it's an, uh, when the object is finished is a really interesting thing to think about because obviously there are like with things like a chair you can kind of see where it's the edges of it and you can see the boundaries of it and you can see the like the, the boundaries of a cabinet or a, a textile because it's like you can literally see the, the boundaries of it but obviously it becomes difficult when the the um when you can't see the edges and you can't see the terrain as easily and it's actually there's all of this stuff that's just completely unknown or un, unquantifiable or that, and that's where it is becoming difficult and to know what the life of the object is and actually almost I almost kind of inclined to kind of surrender to it in that way in the ways that it's not it's almost not our place to kind of go okay we're going to close it down and that's it and that's what the object is but trying to show that again this is where rapid response has been really interesting for us because it has that sort of um idea like the, the Primark jeans for instance um, is an example of that where we collected a pair of Primark jeans at the time of the Bangladeshi fa- uh, factory collapse which killed a number of people and these aren't these jeans aren't from the factory but they were they're still made at that time and we collected them to indicate towards a story that existed before and, and will continue mm. to exist afterwards um, and it is as important to collect those as a, uh, to show the state of contemporary design which is showed about mass manufacture and, and labour and factories but also to kind of to almost at time stamp and say this is a point in design history that needs to be paid attention to because this happened as a result of these things and that will, that has a life around it which isn't as easily um it's, it's that you can't kind of collect that in a moment beyond this mm. i don't know it's interesting but hmm. and 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 i guess it also speaks to the, the challenge of collecting the other things that could represent that uh mm. corporate doc- documentation that mm. shows um 
bad biz, biz, business practices, yeah. corporate decision make, make, making, the artifacts of, mm. of contemporary capitalism that, that create these artifacts themselves are... Yeah are also hard to collect. It's interesting because I, I, I have like a, an obsession with watching um, auction houses auctioning off weird bits of like historic computing bureaucracy. So recently, I think it was at Christie's, they, was, they sold like uh, the, the contract which showed the separation of like Steve Wozniak from Apple company for like something like stupid, like £500,000. Like someone had bought like the, the actual contract. I was like, why? What, who is this person that's collecting this? And even like as a result of kind of going down this rabbit hole, you, I found this like amazing eBay collector who has collected literally every bit of Apple point of sale, like from like the kind of the silver balloons that had iMac on them to just like pens and all, all this kind of stuff. And obviously people are they do know the significance of this now. I wonder if it's because it is Apple and that obviously they, they are, they, they've proven their significance in that way. But I feel that there's going to be a lot of that stuff coming up and it's not something that we've actually collected before. And like I've been thinking, like, oh, God, maybe we should be collecting like these contracts and the bureaucracy and all the stuff to kind of show that. But Or, or is that just like something that you put as part of the research, like a facsimile of it? Like, what's, difference, what's the importance of collecting the actual thing compared to having it as a supporting kind of facsimile? I don't know. I guess it's collecting service kind of design or systems design. Oh God, collecting service design. I, we literally had this conversation about two weeks ago. Where it was like trying to introduce like the because service design obviously is the effect. It's the it's like complete, almost completely invisible in some ways. Whereas like it shows you all those decisions that were made to make this better. And actually, there's there's like an amazing company um, that's headed by Sarah Gold in the UK called Projects But If and they have collected this incredible well they've kind of created this amazing repository of like data permissions so all the surface design that goes into getting uh, sort of obtaining um data from you so all these kind of design behaviours and they've done a number of amazing kind of like it's like a repository and a library of that but then I was thinking with a couple of colleagues like what does it mean to sort of collect those things how do you collect the um, interaction of like allowing Apple to see your location or allowing it to access your photos because they're still really important design processes and design decisions that have to be understood um, but we just don't think about them in that way yet and that's 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 kind of the, almost the, the next thing but it's like all of these things have to happen in um in collaboration with each other like how do you collect like the initial sort of in like location services interaction because that still has an important story to tell around how we understand space so think about collecting tinder for instance like which we genuinely have talked about collecting because it's made us redefine relationships in geographic space but that has only been made possible by a series of design decisions up to that point which should also be taken as seriously as the final project itself or is it about in that case collecting the interaction of swiping left or left or left or right yeah, um, maybe I mean, is a different sort of collecting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things that I've I've proposed wanting to look into collecting. As a, like, so a lot of the time, I I have objects and things that I almost think through as experiments myself, not necessarily because they're going to be collected, but because it would be interesting to think about how to collect them. So the original Instagram filters by Cole Rise, um, which I found out recently that Rise was named after the creator, not the Sunrise, which is what I previously th- thought it was. So Cole Rise was the original curator, wow. uh, curator, collect, um, creator of that. Um, and like, how would you go about collecting Instagram filters? Because mm. it's not enough for you to just put them on a white background because that isn't actually what they are and that's not what they look like. So would you have to collect Instagram as it is na- as it was back in 2000? I can't remember when they updated the, the, the new ones. All the time. All the time. Years. 
um, to, back when they were able to show those things, but then how would you... And it becomes that sort of ongoing conversation of, like, do you need to collect Instagram, as it was then? And then what does that mean? And, like, is it enough for you just to have the, the, the layering file? Where you, I, I don't even actually know what file format that would be in. Um, it'd be too part of the APK file, but it's... Um, it's it's an interesting. It's good to think about these things. Think about what those things look like. Cause it's not enough to kind of go. Oh, that's too hard. Like maybe we should just do it and see what happens. Uh, yeah. So it's an interesting one. Yeah. So you know, I think we've talked a lot about uh, collecting the software and, and and a little bit about the effects of those on the on our societies around mm. us. Um, but I guess the the thing that. Um, one of the things we, we, we haven't really covered is uh, the challenges around um, choosing and 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 how how inst how inst um, how institutions are choosing. Mm. You know, you, you're a you're a you're a curator who's making choices about collecting, mm. and it would feel that museums have retreated a bit from collecting, um, faced in the physical space by. You know, storage challenges mm, yeah. and austerity cuts in the UK, um, centralising of store storage, moving of museums, all this sort of things, mm. the closure of museums. Um, it would seem that there's an urgency around collecting more things, mm. and these more things are not necessarily physical things. And there's also an opportunity, perhaps, for um, as we're seeing from uh, fan collecting and yep. amateur collecting and the e the eBay fanatics who are collecting these con con contracts and other things. Where does the border of the the museum end and mm. um, fan collecting begin? Curators were the yeah. original fans, right? I mean, yeah, it's an interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm like my nickname at work is computer lady because of my obsession with like weird computing history. But and I, I fully acknowledge that obviously there is um, there's a level of authorship of, of curators and what they decide to bring. And so obviously my, the, the conversations I think are important at that. But actually, it's been interesting working with a team full of people where like it's not so much my individual decision to bring these things in. It's like the wider department. But even then, like we still have to fill the outs for the people. And like this is why. I guess it's been interesting um, talking to early computers. So talking to Berg, for instance, or people who were part of Berg, or, um, because we, we, we had a little printer given to us. And we were thinking about so the little printer was a weird little, I'll have to show you the face, it's just a really weird object. Um, it's essentially, it's like a thermoprinter that could be connected to a series of feeds and you could customise them yourself, but they ha it had a little face. And um, the big, one of the biggest sort of like controversies was when they um, changed the haircut because suddenly people became very fully aware that it wasn't controlled by you and it's controlled by a server somewhere else. And that was originally sort of a, almost like a demo for the Berg Cloud, which was um, Berg's original um, sort of idea of like centralising or like kind of an internet of things mm. server. Um, and speaking to users of Little Printer was really almost more interesting, or not more interesting, than reading the history of it, which had been typed up, which I just kind of pulled together from various um, press releases and, and that kind of thing. Um, and stuff like talking to the people who, who use them at the time has always been f kind of fundamental to, to my role, I guess. Um, but it's, it's the difficulties, like, there are fan cultures that we should be acknowledging. And I wonder whether it's, like, we, we tend to engage them in exhibition circumstances. Mm. So video games, for instance, um, Marie and Christian have been really, really central to um, making sure that conversation with fan cultures is open and is, and, and is kind of being acknowledged. Um, I think actually one of, I can't remember which game it is, there is one of the games, I think it's Splatoon, maybe, 
um, where they've brought in a lot of the, the fan material and that kind of thing. Because right. um, if you think about things like, I oh, know it's Overwatch, that's it. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Um, there was an amazing picture of a Shiba dog that's dressed up like one of the characters. Um, but acknowledging those fan cultures. But, but the thing is, obviously, it's then how do we bring that back into the institution as a more permanent thing? Um, and maybe I think we have done it as much beyond like collecting. Um, a few, a few bits and pieces but I think it's, it's something that we definitely need to be doing more like you mentioned about oral histories it's like there are certain things that we need to borrow from social history and like pieces at the Museum of London and Bishopsgate which have got a really rich history of oral history kind of collection I don't know whether it's because it's not been seen as part so much part of the process before I'm not sure and I'm sure there are kind of curators of the who are thinking about this but not so much I guess immediately in, in my work which is kind of sad because it's something that I do anyway and so when I was um, collecting the emoji the mosquito emoji I interviewed Jennifer Aitley who was part of Emoji Nation and asked her about it and the history of how that, that mosquito would even go through the process of doing that and then I interviewed the, um, the designer um, but even then it's like those got kind of put on a file and then they get put in a sort of a literal physical file and put and somewhere away. And, yeah filed away um, I guess it's how we then bring those stories about next and that's kind of our, our next challenge but. and the opportunity for those materials to be instantly published and available yeah. even if the thing isn't on ex- exhibition yeah and that's kind of it's interesting kind of looking at the search of collections also. we don't as, as yet have a way for you to access we have blog posts you can write blog posts mm. but often like there needs to be more than blog posts I think um, no offence to our, our wonderful blog posting because they're amazing um, but it is it is figuring out like how you how you can sort of show that contextual and cultural history alongside that object beyond just the file that's reported. And I know that there's a lot of work that's been done to make sure those um, those things are accessible, but it is like, it's making sure that, I don't know, you can link to, to things. But I don't know. Oh, Ben. I'll just see if I can find this. So this this is the record on the Cooper Hewitt website for Planetary, one, one of the objects. Um, uh, and and one, one of the things that was... One of the design decisions, so this, this is the statement of sig- sig- significance and all of these sorts of things. I love the colour palettes. And I think you can put, um, I've got to try and remember this, um, uh, justification at the end. Mm. And you get the original justification statements that we uh, yeah. wrote for the acquisitions team about why we acquired it. Yeah. So, so, yeah, so trying try to this, reveal yeah. this publicly was an important part of the system response, I guess, yeah. and, and how to how to show these things in, in a way that they had meaning before and after exhibition, just so that's a bit more readable. Here's a yeah. slide version of that. That that in fact that I think the the way that di- digital collections are collected mm. and, and preserved is also about making sure that they they don't need to wait for ex, ex, exhibition mm. for their rationale to, yeah. to, no, we, to be made public. We definitely I mean a lot of our justifications, especially the ones that I mean that we've been writing recently, or actually within our department in particular, um, Corinna, who's my senior curator, um, is always really, really like pushing us to make sure that we do kind of contextualise in that way and think about it as like the reason why it's significant this collection and what it links to um, but also kind of how it exists now not just as a display object and mm. think about it in like the, what the important considerations we have to make which is why she's, she's put like kind of encourages us to put things like I don't know contextual files like like web like news stories and that kind of thing things which kind of contextualise it as having another life beyond just the what the curator has written about it um, and making sure that um there are these kind of like supplementary stories to tell, but it's yeah, it's it's still, it's still trying to like almost like not baby steps, but it's kind of making sure that like 
you have as much there so that if you're a curator in 50 years' time, they could come back to that file and kind of go, oh, okay, so I see that's why that decision was made or that was there. Like, you have to kind of almost show your workings in that way, mm. uh, which is interesting thinking about GitHub because actually, like, one of the things that I have been thinking about recently is version controlling as a way of understanding stuff because being able to look back and see how things were edited and how they were understood and, like... A proposition could be what was what? How could you show the version controlling of any object in a in a system? Mm. Like how could you show how they? I know you can see it in in our collections management records. You can see where it's been changed and where that that has been happening. But actually, something that's a bit more live and a bit more like understandable for the public to see how these decisions changed and how that mm. that happened, rather than just being the most updated version of something. It's like oh, so ten years ago they thought about it like this, and that's now been thought about differently. And yeah, I mean you have that with lots of objects where the provenance is suddenly uncovered, like. Yeah objects of the difficult kind of pasts um, and something like oh yeah like you you can't ignore that history and it can be worked into that file but you always want to see what it looked like before that point yeah I think the public well. view of that is super critical I think yeah. the work the Brooklyn the Brooklyn Museum did yeah. in MoMA as yeah. well about showing when objects have been on ex, 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 exhibition the context throughout 100 mm. plus years of Gosh, when the same yeah. thing was shown multiple times and what it was beside mm. Um, those ex, 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 exhibition views, those yeah. exhibition views that are now being de- digitised at MoMA and made yeah. available, are very interesting to show Super how the meaning has changed of things. Um, I think it, we've got about 30 minutes left, so may, maybe there's, I'm sure people have questions yes. uh, that can cut through the caffeinated jet, jet lag yeah, states of both of us, actually. I've had coffees today and I had a nap, which is the worst thing you could possibly do at 2pm in the afternoon. So, uh, good um, we're going to hand some mics around. Um, if you could just wait for a mic to get to you so your question is picked up by our stream, that would be great. Um, yeah, I've just got a question around um, digital preservation of physical objects. So um, obviously I come from the, the Jason Scott philosophy of archiving, I keep everything and let future generations work it out. Um, but we've obviously got too many physical things. So um, the approach of physically scanning um, laser scanning objects. Obviously, Google Google's doing it on on mass with their project Tango, so that mm. mostly so they can identify objects walking around. But the British Museum has started to do high res, res you know, scans of the Rosetta Stone, yeah. and great cultures come out of it. People three D print their own Rosetta Stone, um, but you know, people have been trying to import these things into. Um, VR chat or things like Second Life, but the Polygon res can't handle it, so they can't get anything in there. But there'll be a point where we'll be able to have a proper digital museum. And even Acme here, you did have a digital, you know, Acme Parks 3D virtual museum here at one point. Um, my question is, do you, we, we're, we are seeing the high res 3D laser scanning of, you know, ancient things, you know, the Sistine Chapel and full mm. structures. Um, but looking at your rapid response project, I, I look at that as a perfect candidate for 3D laser scanning objects of cultural relevance mm. and you can have more throughput. You don't necessarily have to archive everything. Um, do you see that happening? Um, have you seen that happen anywhere, particularly in contemporary yeah. stuff? I mean, we are doing that. It's, 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 it's a kind of, a, again, it's a slow project because it, it's like, it's super labor int- intensive. And I mean, we have a project uh, called Reatch, or it's called, it says Reach, but it's like Reatch. Um, which is digitizing our collections, but through 3D uh, sort of like lidar scanning and that kind of thing. Um, but the problem is with that again, it's like I think it's like one or two people who are doing it, and so it's mm. super labor intensive. So you have to choose what objects you're going to have, and it goes through almost goes through a kind of curatorial process again. 
and Brendan Cormier is, is working on it from our side. But we've, I think we're, we are in the process of scanning some of our rapid response objects at the moment. I'm, I'm hoping my colleagues aren't watching this and kind of going, no. no we're not. Um, but, the, but it is important to do that stuff because it's like one of the interesting things, I guess, is um, the weirdness about being able to just kind of emulate the, the, the shape of the objects and having those things and putting them in position um, becomes more difficult if you don't, um, I don't know, if you don't, obviously don't scan, because like the, the problem you was going to have is like when the physical object degrades and when it stops being um, kind of complete. And there is one 3D scan, scan that was done as part of the React project, which um, was trying using a 3D scan to show what the missing pieces were of an object that had been destroyed beforehand to kind of show what it was like in completeness. Um, but also it meant that you could you could actually look at it as it is now as a scan. Um, but it's, it's it's super important, I think. And it's, it's something that I think a lot of museums are starting to really prioritise. I know that you've done yeah, it. So. I mean, we, when we were re rebuilding the Cooper Hewitt for the Smithsonian, we actually did a full 3D scan of the building, a uh, full LiDAR, LiDAR scan of the in and out kind of side of the building and open uh, source the architectural model mm. so people could import it into other tools to make first-person first shooters or pull it into Amazing. special effects for video games. And this, this was about open sourcing the entire thing. Uh, you could also download the um, S kind of number TL file um, it, it was up in Thingiverse, it was ready to 3, 3, oh, 3D great. print. It was a CC0 licensed museum itself. But the, but the opportunity to do that was, was, was you know, limited. Mm. And uh, the, the sense that the um, scan was really, really amazingly done by 3D systems. But the resolution of that scan was at 20, 20, 2014 resolutions. Mm. So as that, that moves for, forward in time, the, it's a bit like dig, digitizing, 2D dig, digitization of collections, it's never done. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that the challenge around particularly net, networked pieces, so if I go back to the Pac-Man object I had up there a second ago somewhere, if I get my cursor back, oh, there we go. Um, you know, what, what is a 3D scan of a Pac-Man PCB yeah. Yeah. Uh, versus actually a play, playable version? Um, and is the emulated ver, ver, version the same thing? Yeah. All that sort of stuff um, comes to the fore. Yeah, it's interesting you're kind of saying, like, there is a point where... Um yeah, it's an interesting provocation because, because like with with objects that we understand to be sort of more easy, so things like, like the jeans or the eyelashes, they're they're quite easy to understand the scan of. But I guess it's it, it kind of does become different when you think about things like I don't know computer circuitry and that kind of thing. And like you can you can genes, copy a model. Though. Yeah, actually, the, yeah. The, the jeans are the jeans scanned when they're on a mannequin. Mm. What's the dimensions yeah, yeah. of the mannequin? And all those choices are really yeah. important because they they go on to be the objects in the collection as much as anything else. And actually, it reminds me of a really great project called Shiv Integer by Matthew Palmer Fernandez, um, where he scanned, there's, there's a bunch of really interesting artists who are working with like 3D archives, which I like. I love because it shows you the length at which things can be thought about by other people outside of the museum or out beyond the archive. Um, and he basically went through like a Thingiverse and just like wrote an algorithm which just shoved different bits of objects together and created entirely new objects which were completely nonsensical, but they kind of end up becoming an object of their own and having a life of their own. And like, I think you can probably see a few of them. But they, they, they sorry? Yeah, it's amazing, and like you can print these off. They're in total, like, like you might have to use a few scaffolds, but like they're um, they're entirely available for you to print them off. Um, 
and I just love the fact that like you can see objects from di- there we go from different people's collections being shoved together, and that's almost more like. But then these these objects are now being understood as objects in their own right, and Matthew's mm. work is being brought into like museums, which is also so, like modding kind of video yeah. games. And yeah, if yeah, you're yeah. talking about any of the yeah. new video games, it's all about the modding. Even if you go back to the early nineties. Uh, I mean, modding is, is fascinating. Cause like, super, super important. Like one of the yeah. projects that I, I was speaking to a colleague called John O'Shea, at the, he was at the National Football Museum, he's now at um, the National Science and Media Museum in Bradford, was talking about um, mods in football games. So wh- one of the things that ages ago I was really obsessed with was how um, games were um, modding women or other people into games where you previously couldn't have them. Because I think the, the only game that had female players was like Michael Owen's football game and, and like Dreamcast and, like, like, I don't know, really quite early game. And they look crap, but people kept trying to mod things, not just like World of Warcraft characters in, in like FIFA, but like literally modding women into games where there weren't women. And like mods are important, but actually like what is the mod? How do you show, like is it, is it enough for you to show the actual patch or is you need to show it in context with things? And any digital object like that, like you could, you could think about that. And it's, it is interesting in terms of like, when you digitise anything, regardless or whether you kind of isolate it from context, it still becomes its own object in its own right or its own thing to think about. But yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. That was a bit of a ramble. But um, so, uh, looking at collecting something like the APK for a game, um, <clears throat> have you started to think about how you're going to collect um, things that are machine learning? Um, base which require code and enormous amounts of data and kind of designed to not be ever mm. one thing it's a really it's a genuinely interesting question because it's like we don't know how because people will understand it in terms of um obviously developers and people who, who work with the material like interestingly know what that is but actually you're right it's like how do you um, I know a little while ago people were thinking about collecting algorithms and like, but algorithms essentially are just instructions and they can like that's it's all I think it was the Philip de Puri kind of auction where they auctioned off the OkCupid algorithm but like you can just write that out and you can see that and you can kind of see the source code for that but when it's the same with any network stuff or anything that relies on having data as the back end for it if you think about um, machine learning systems for like facial recognition and, and even things like OpenCV like anything which relies on having those big things like you almost need to collect that to show the effects that those things have on on things like how how it reads people, genders, sexualities, that kind of thing. Like um, the fact that I don't know Google image searches algorithm for a while read black people as, as literally as gorillas, which is like unbelievably racist and awful. But like you kind of have to almost put like you'd have to collect all of those training sets, and like that is a, you're right an immense amount of data. I mean, there's an artist um, that I was I was on on a panel with quite recently called Anna Riddler, who was creating her own data set to be able to train her own machine learning algorithms and it involves her taking 20,000 photos of tulips because she can't rely on using the sets that previously exist because they have their own biases and their own um, kind of thing written into them but you like it just requires again either an immense amount of service space but also an intrinsic understanding of what it means to preserve that stuff and to look after that stuff and I know we've spoken in the museum about having a digital conservator and we don't really have one as yet. We have a, a great team that look after things on one end and make sure that the, 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 the kind of server and the computer is still working. But actually, you, can, you do need to have someone who's able to figure out that stuff. And, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, I mean, we, so I mean, we work on certain sort of art projects where the results that you generate get fed back into the training. Mm. 
Yeah. And so oh it gets gosh. even. So it's kind yeah. of an ever never ending, you know, vortex. Yeah. Um, so what? Yeah. So and the work just progresses over months and months and months. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know really yet. But it is. A, it's a really. It's a really good thing to think about because you can't ignore that it happens and you can't ignore those things. And I mean, you'd almost have to again timestamp things. But even then, like that's difficult to trace. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. Isn't it though a bit like doc documenting performance? Or even that the digital conservator perhaps is like a zoo zookeeper <laughs> running a, a breeding program for animals in the zoo and yeah. it's the descendant animals and it's the idea that the animal, it's not that the original DNA gets preserved, yeah. it's actually that the it keeps generating along. Yeah, Shakespeare's plays get keep getting per, 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 That is a good performed. analogy. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's always it's, it's simpler to always fall towards those analogies because I think it's it does make sense actually thinking about. But then I kind of think about how they, how scientists understand so, like simulation data and and like obviously that there must be like there are scientists who kind of keep and collect like not collect in the same way that we do but like they have their own the, the, the kind of the training or well, not the training sets the um the data that was used to do a specific thing and they must keep those things somewhere like i visited the barcelona supercomputing center which is the most beautiful server like supercomputer i've ever seen because it's in a church and like they it's they play like thomas tallis when you walk in it's weird um but they have like thousands and thousands of um simulation things happening at, at the same time but they, they must there must be some way that they're doing it. Maybe that's where we can learn from that. But actually, you're right in terms of performance. Like, it's almost that um, you were saying earlier about kind of the collect all and see what makes sense of it. But sometimes actually collecting it all is quite difficult. And that's where maybe the curatorial thing has to step in and kind of go, actually, we're just going to choose that and that and that. Like Twitter and the Library of Congress, they recently had to stop collecting all of Twitter because you can't collect all of Twitter. That's mental. And it also still isn't searchable because yeah. they can't. Yeah. So they, they, they kind of put a statement out quite recently saying that we're going to choose specific tweets and moments in time because, and then that will become it. And I don't know, it's, it is an interesting, it's a really difficult question because like the actual, like the, the glut of stuff we have now, and maybe that's where the, where it is a difficult problem where like, and the speed of these things growing is so vast. It's just like, again, it's a difficult thing. Like should the curator have the final say? And then that's the, Yeah. It's good. Good question, though. Yeah. Uh, hi. Uh, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask then, because there's a, you just can't c collect everything, and you have to make some sort of uh, choices, as you've just said. Um, listening to what you were saying, a lot of the the issue is actually deciding what's the thing, you know, because the thing moves about in these systems, and then it's also deciding what what you can hold on to that represents what it is you want to represent. Mm. Um, you know, we do collect shards of things. We don't yeah. necessarily have to have to get the lot. What I was wondering, though, was uh, how is your conservation department um, reacting to your collecting? I, I think I think they're, they're kind of bemused but intrigued by us, um, and we we do have amazing people working in the team, um, and we've got um, like Claire Batterson, who's one of our conservators, who works with us most closely, and she has done she's looked at any object from like the jeans to a pair of Snapchat spectacles we recently acquired to whatever, but also we have, we bring in a lot of our traditional conservators, um, so we, as I mentioned earlier, we've recently. Um, Acquired Radical Love by Heather Dewey Hagball, which is a 3D printed 
set of portraits, but it's 3D printed sandstone. And so we have to find the expertise in our team that can comment on that. But even then they are like, oh, I've never seen this before. So 3D printed sandstone is like um, gypsum mixed with epoxy resin and it kind of creates a print and it makes these really beautiful 3D printed objects. Um, it's not, yeah, it'll be in this exhibition. It's not on the record yet because it's literally just been acquired. Um, but it's, um, we, ha- we can bring in our, our team, like, so Sarah Healy, who is our senior sculpture conservator, was brought in to look at that object. So we, we can bring in those people. But the difficulty is then when um, those more complex digital objects start being thought about. And actually, it's, it is a group effort and it is, um, even though we don't have a dedicated person in post, we have a lot of people who are able to contribute and start thinking about a framework for this stuff. And I guess the next step for us is like, once all these people in the room have, have, have been talking about it, so anyone from Douglas Dodds, who's our digital art um, conservator, and, and those and like Melanie Lentz, they will then work with our IT team and work with those people, and then we'll, we're sort of pacing around this framework. And I think that would be the next, for me, really interesting step is for us to kind of formalise that and kind of go, okay, so... Hmm. But by acquiring and by just doing, I think, I think. But we also have a number of, of research projects that sit alongside that to almost like feed into that. Um, but it's, it's kind of we're now driving towards that that sharp point of like, okay, so what does this? What could this look like? Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think that is the only way to move forward with this. I think certainly at the Smithsonian, the the, ac- the acquisition of of an app, the release mm. of its source source code. Uh, and the work that followed that uh, was really about pushing the ins- the institution to a- to adapt yeah. um, in order to be relevant in in the present moment and mm. to be able to uh, acquire and talk about the contemporary mom- yeah. mom- moment uh, without waiting. Um, but it was a was a strange dance between the con- yeah. conservation teams. Um, the legal teams around this stuff. I, I think a lot of the legal practices around what acquisition is when the mm. thing is perhaps under license from some someone else, certainly with source code yeah. that now source code is made up of other libraries that have their own licensing agreements and other things. Mm. What is the actual thing, um, let, let alone the user data let alone the, pri- the, the pri- privacy is- issues. But, but it does feel like there's an urgency around making sure that there is some yeah. record of the of the networked moment. Yeah. Um, which I think is hard. It is, it is hard. I, actually, I was just going to show some of the work that's been going on here. Um, uh, the um, collections team here has just been starting to, if I get my cursor back, uh, look at... Where does the cursor go? It just disappears. It's a shaky thing. There we go. There we go. Um, so this is a work from... T- 2000. We haven't acquired the the cursor. Yes. So this is a, a digital artwork from Mel, Melbourne artist Troy Innocent that was exhibited here in two, two, 2004. Nick Richardson and the collections team here has been working to um, rebuild this to actually bring it back to exhibition. So this is this is a very straightforward in quotes work. Um, it's in the collection. It's uh, four screens. It's four computers. It's a series of uh, MIDI controllers. It's it's not complicated. It's not connected to the, in- the internet. Mm. It is not um, very old. The thing that stops this coming back to life is a win- the absence of a wind kind of those 2000 drive, drive, driver for a particular piece of software that makes this work, that that is not available anywhere. 
And so this was sitting in our future lab being restored for several weeks to be hit with this what feels like a very solvable problem on paper, but in reality mm. is actually very, very hard because those communities, this is working with the artist who's still alive and working with us as us in Gosh, any case. Yeah. Even when that is easy and accessible, things that are only 15 years old mm. are effectively uh, a series of beige boxes. In this case, a series of beige towers because yeah. the computers were kind of big back then still. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the kind of world the person is alive. And yeah. this is where, where there is an urgency to have, like... I mean, there are people who are digital conservatives. There, there is a job that's doing that, I guess. But a lot of the work that I see is still in digital art and time-based media work. Um, but it's, it is sort of figuring out, like, how to kind of catch up with the stuff before people... Not stop dying, that sounds really morbid. But, like, before the expertise starts just... Or, like, well, like companies close. Companies closing. closing. I mean, yeah. the Planetary, the app, was made possible because Bloom shut down. And yeah. so the makers had their IP and they were unencumbered yeah. and could make choices about where it went. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the um, the the Enron art mm. project by Sam Levine and Take a Brain, which is like, and I've, I have it currently going through my inbox. So it's like going through all of the Enron emails just before the collapse, um, before they closed. Obviously, that, that is like a massive email archive, like literally thousands and thousands of emails. Like in it is weird things like people writing love letters to each other and people asking people for lunch, as well as like, major merger and acquisition problems and that kind of thing um it's a great it's a great project but it is like that's one thing that has a kind of it has a stop to it and it has a close like you can just pull that information from it but obviously things when you have like the internet of things and things that require like active connection or things to be there like when it's turned off or it's switched off like it just it ceases to be that object like the nabaz tag it's like everyone no one probably remembers it like, I, I have a, a weird obsession with French industrial and inter early internet design the Nabaz tag is basically a, a rabbit that you connect to the Wi-Fi and it did things this it was super cute on. it was really cute I have one um, but like the minute they decided to shut it down it just became a, a rabbit with like magnetic ears um, it ceased to have a life beyond that thing and so it's kind of we have to, it, this is where it becomes a bit more difficult and maybe it's just the internet being there that it's yeah when the internet is integral to the design of the object, that's where it becomes that's difficult. Yeah, exa exactly. Like, oh god, one of my favourite Twitter accounts. Have is you the acquired internet an internet shit. refrigerator yet for the VNA? No, don't, but like, don't. there's a great. Um, oh god, the Samsung like, oh, here's so many calories. You can't have your your fridge open. Um, internet of shit is one of my favourite Twitter accounts because it's just like not everything has to be connected to the internet, but people are really trying. Like if you look at like CES every single year, there's this increase of people like even things like like internet connected vibrators, toothbrushes. Um, lunch boxes. I don't know why the internet needs to be connected to a lunch box. That's another thing. Look at that. It's fantastic. Yeah, exactly. This is, there's a guy called Smari McCarthy who, who did, who's a, I think he was part of the Pirate Party in, in Iceland um, who talked about like how to make your data expensive so that it's not as easy to sell anymore. But go back up to the, the one with the, the water because this is a horrific one. Oh, yeah. So this is refill. Look, I looked this up. So basically you can get tap water for free, but if you sign up to $1.99 a month, you can get chilled water. And filtered. And filtered. It's mental. Um, but, but it's just, it's just one, one of those things where it's like, it, but it's, we have to chart and understand this trend now and how you do it. Is, so would you acquire yeah. refill as an, oh, exam an example of negative design patterns? Or bad design? I don't know if I want to give it that legitimacy. I'm joking. <laughs> um, 
I mean, but no, but it's it, this is why I kind of go back to those data, like cl- how you collect data behaviors and data permission behaviors, and like the things that came as a result of that. Oh my god, this is amazing. Um, but it is that. Um, you, you have to show that there was a trend in this and it's not enough to kind of wait and say, oh, does it have an impact? Because often the impact is not as easy to see anymore. And like it's, it's so slow and incremental and so um, sort of careful. Oh, my God. <sighs> is that real? Like, Sorry, I just wanted to... Thank you very much. It's really fascinating. Um, but I just wanted to ask, like, Natalie, what your actual week looks like? Because you talked a lot about needing to, like, think about things, and that's an interesting question, and we're thinking about this. But then it sounds like you also have to talk to, like, lawyers and other creators. And, like, how much time... Do you schedule time just for thinking? Or, like, what... what? Oh, my God, it's a luxury. <laughs> I actually do now. I never used to. Um, and, my, and it's cr- my senior curator who said to me, you have to block out time in your, in your, ca- like, your calendar to just research because there's sort of I can't think of the pie chart of what my week looks like 20% is probably emails still um, a lot of it is kind of it's also like cataloging cataloging is really time consuming because like when you have, bring an object in you have to sort of build that file and that often means sitting at a computer writing tiny little details and that's incredibly time consuming and it's why I block out like a day for it um, I do have time to think but like often a lot of it is weirdly peripheral thinking as well so it's from talking to people and realising there are new problems to think about and things I have to go and research or um, hilariously like I, I'm, it sounds a bit unorthodox but I really enjoy looking at Twitter and not just as a kind of a leisure activity because it's never a leisure activity it's also like torture at the same time um because I, I always really enjoy because a lot of my work is kind of active looking at technology and design in that way it's like looking at how people are talking about stuff and thinking about like how people are figuring this stuff out and also looking at how other people are talking to other people about that kind of thing um but yeah i, I do I, I literally have made myself have to block out time for research now because it's really easy for you to just get lost in that stuff mm. um emails obviously are time consuming but also like figuring out paperwork for stuff and like I think I spent, I'm currently working on the, on the Biennale project for London Design Biennale and the, the level of just figuring out like these tiny little things is difficult but you, you still have to make time for yourself to, to like work out those problems and it could be literally sitting in, I don't know, on my computer for three, four hours and going like, I don't know where to start and then kind of picking out parts but it's, yeah, but I get a lot of work done by talking to my colleagues and so actually the majority of the most enriching research for me is like having a conversation with people in my department because they're all amazing and interesting people from different disciplines and actually a lot of my my thinking and my research comes from having that that relationship with people and that's always kind of, I try and make time for that as much as I can. That's one of the luxuries of working in a large institution, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I came from working in an institution with like 12 people where I, th- I think I had like one or two people to talk to where now I have like 120 curators I can go and talk to about anything, um, which is annoying for most people because I kind of ring up, I don't know, one of our curators of 18th century Japanese miniatures and say, how does this link to emoji? And they were like, well... <laughs> But it is, it's its a massive luxury, obviously, having that. But also, like, I'm very lucky that I also have a, a kind of a collection of peers as well. And people from, like, not just curator friends, because if we, I was friends with just curators, I'd be a really boring person, no offence. Um, but, like, I have, like... Because we'd just be like, what does it mean? What is this? Um, but I have, like, friends who are, like, anthropologists and developers and uh, teachers and all sorts of things. And, like, I'm very lucky that I have that network and I've always sort to make sure that I'm I am talking to lots of different people rather than just other people who work in museums because otherwise we wouldn't it wouldn't represent the work that needs to be done I guess but yeah I 
think we're just about at the end, unless does anyone have a final, very short question? <laughs> yes? Um, just because the BNA is a very sort of prestigious and public-facing organisation, I'm wondering, do you get a lot of inquiries from the general public or from industry about conserving digital materials? We get a lot of people who do send in, or we either have objects that are sent to us, that are kind of like gifted in some ways. We, we do, as it is policy of the museum, to look at everything. Um, we do get a lot of emails from people suggesting stuff. So, rapid response, for instance, we are open for suggestions for that. Um, and we've kind of got, I think we've got a hashtag or a call where you, anyone can suggest an object and we will think about it seriously. Um, and I think that it generally is the rule with the museum, but it's we get a lot of people asking us, and I have a lot of students actually recently who want to interview us or one of our curators to think about it. And I'm always really, um, I always make sure that I can answer those questions and I make time to talk to students about it because they're still discovering it as much as, as we are. And um, and I'm so, I have an opportunity to learn from them because they've kind of looked at it from one perspective and we're like, ah, oh, okay, that's fine. But it's it's difficult because like we've I think we've yet to have anyone kind of say, can you? Preserve my Twitter account, and I'd right. be really intrigued to see a lot to think that through. I mean, I'm also like terrified at the prospect of that because yeah. um, we were talking about the president phones, weren't we? Earlier? Oh yeah, yeah. So the, Smith's, yeah. the Smithsonian acquires uh, every president's uh, cell cell phone, and the idea is that <laughs> those were things in the past, but now they're increasingly have data trails yeah. on them I mean, and I'd like to that would be kind of interesting right yeah. I'd like to collect uh, Donald Trump's draft tweets <laughs> that would oh, be my uh, favourite the, 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 uh, they, they're, they're probably stored yeah. in the uh, RAM there but somewhere. can you imagine like remember uh, all the things he decides to tweet out which is literally everything his mind thinks of what he's on the toilet or whatever it is um, the, well, the, tra- the, the locations draft. as well it would have the G- oh, GPS trails what's right? the golden toilet that wants to yeah anyway um, but the uh, but, it, but it's it is kind of like the phone is not the object anymore obviously but like mm. things like preserving people's twitter accounts i think there are i think there's the library of congress is yeah. looking into doing stuff like that but i guess it's like yeah it's yeah part of me is like if i want to say you should suggest things you should i think it's really important that people can suggest stuff which is why we have the rapid response um hashtag but yeah i'd love to hear people's suggestions of things we should be collecting totally yeah well thanks a lot Thank you, Seb. Thank you for your questions. They're all really good. So thank you. Thanks a lot. And our next one is... (laughs) Soon. Soon. Wow, I've got the web up here. Let me look it up on the internet. I love love this term web-jaying that Seb's introduced me to. I've started doing it more, actually. So it's, though it was, we were talking earlier, you do have to make sure you clear your cache when you're doing this, because uh, otherwise you realise like, the level of people's anxieties around things like illness, where it's like, why is my tongue this colour? Like, that would be what mine was or like. Why are cats meowing at me? That kind of thing. Because they love me, that's why. There we go. There ne- go. Next week. Ooh. Yes, please come along next week to um, Art, Politics and Protest on the 8th of May. Um, and in the meantime, thanks everyone for coming out tonight. And thank you again to Seb and Natalie. Thank you. Thanks. Conversations podcast. 
Visit acme.net.au for information about upcoming events, exhibitions and film screenings. <laughs>